Welcome back to our episode on the Battle of Cooch's Bridge on the Saving Delaware History Podcast. We are still speaking with Mr. Wade Katz about the events and effects of the conflict at Cooch's Bridge. Let's get right into it. The battle is fought through essentially three principal battle lines, and it seems that they, the way the American force was established is that they, they had these well-established or already established battle lines. You would in, engage one line, they would fight until they, they were either out of ammunition or outflanked, then they dropped back to the next line and forced the Hessian forces and the British forces to deploy. Once that battle line was fought and either outflanked or out uh, or, or exhausted its ammunition, it then dropped back again. If you look at the way Maxwell fights his uh, battle at the Battle of Brandywine, which is fought eight days later, he uses the precisely same technique in that uh, this is the way that uh, thinking about the Light Infantry Corps and when they were created, they were only created a, a week before the battle is fought. They have no real strong unit cohesion. Uh, the soldiers are not you're not you're pulling individual soldiers to make this force up. And if you look at the muster rolls from this period, you find uh, a handful of soldiers from each company pulled in to make up this light infantry corps. You have a real problem with your officers of how do you get this group of soldiers to fight together and and trust each other if they've never done this before. And so probably this idea of establishing set battle lines and then dropping back to another set battle line probably works the best in that it allows your men to do what they can do and yet doesn't require them to have had so much training ahead of time that uh, that they you know that they're not going to be able to 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 accomplish what they need to accomplish um and he the hessians indicate that and the hessian field Jaeger corps uh despite the fact that the entire british army is is basically coming up the road it's the Hessian Field Jaeger Corps that bears the brunt of the fighting with the American forces. Um, and their, their commanding officer is a man named um, uh, Ludwig von Berm, Lieutenant Colonel. He is apparently at the front leading his soldiers in the engagement uh, and is really, really does quite an amazing job in getting the, the, the Hessian Field Jaeger Corps to fight this, this engagement. Uh, so much so that he is awarded uh, one of uh, only a handful of awards that the the uh, his uh, the the uh, Landgrave of Hesse Kassel awards to him an award of merit for his um, for his uh, actions at Cooch's Bridge. There are only three of those awards that were ever given out. He gets one. Johann Ewald gets one. That captain who is also in command here, and then one other Hessian officer. So that. Two of those awards are given to two soldiers who fought in this engagement. So the uh, this is a you know from their side of the of the of the story, this was a fairly significant engagement and one that required uh, strong leadership and and uh, military combat training and military leadership on their part. Johann Ewald goes on to be a author. Uh, he's a young officer at this point in 1777. He goes on to write a book called a Treatise on Partisan Warfare in 1785, it becomes sort of the standard for quite some time on how to do these small unit battles, uh, which is what this is, a small unit engagement, almost guerrilla warfare, or as I said, he calls it partisan warfare. It's, it's sort of what's sometimes referred to as petite guerre, small fighting, small war 
Um, not a major pitched engagement like Brandywine or Monmouth or, you know, some other large battle. It's a small unit action, which is very characteristic of the American Revolution. Even Ewald says that uh, at one point in his treatise on partisan warfare, he singles out the Battle of Cuches Bridge to say at one point the Americans were threatening to attack his force. And, and the only way you could respond to this was for his Jaeger Corps to actually assault them and attack the attackers before the attackers did what they were going to do. And if he's using Cooch's Bridge as an example, that's pretty remarkable that it is a significant engagement. In his book, in his eyes, there was something very important that happened here that he learned a, a, a military lesson from and that he wanted to pass along to later generations of, of officers. So as you sort of just got into there, this was obviously a very significant battle. Can you talk about some of the casualties and results that came after the battle had ended? Sure. The, um, and I've gotten us to that second battle line. The third battle line, when the Americans are driven out of their second one, actually crosses Cooch's Bridge and is uh, fought across the bridge, across the creek. Some of the archaeological work we have done shows that there is clear evidence of munitions, musket balls dropped and fired uh, on both sides of the creek in this space that, that kind of attest to the level of engagement that occurred here. Um, at this stage, the British forces had, had advanced the, light, uh, the, uh, the Hessian Field Jaeger Corps up to the bridge. They had two British light infantry battalions that were going to be engaged, but neither of them, particularly the one that goes to the east, gets lost in a uh, what they refer to as an impassable morass or swamp, which is in all likelihood, if you look at the landscape today, it's the location of what is today Sunset Lake. That's where the Light Infantry Corps got stuck, or that, that a British Light Infantry Battalion gets stuck. So think about trying to outflank the American position. That Light Infantry Battalion tried to go to the east, it doesn't make it. There's a, a second one that moves to the west. That light infantry battalion also got caught in a wet, marshy, swampy area, but is able to extricate itself from that and come down towards the bridge. So that last engagement, that last portion of the fighting occurs right around where the house is today, right there at the bridge, and includes Hessian Jaegers and British light infantry and American forces on the east side of the creek returning fire and, and accepting fire. Um, but by this point, British forces have also brought some of their small caliber or small size cannons that are firing probably one pound and three pound balls at the American force. The American force apparently is a little bit disorganized by this point, has shot itself out of most of its ammunition and uh, has no artillery to respond to the British guns. So at that point, the American force retreats towards the village of Christiana and moves uh, east from there. Uh, the British forces cross the creek, but do not pursue very far. Uh, casualties are likely to be about uh, two dozen American soldiers are killed in this engagement. At least that's what we, that's what the documents suggest. Uh, casualty figures at this time are always notoriously uh, difficult because it often depended on who was reporting the casualties as to what level of accuracy they wanted to give. So, uh, and, and keep in mind that for this battle, for all the years I've been studying this, we have no good first person American account of somebody who was actually in the battle reporting what happened. 
the principal account we have is one that George Washington gives to Congress later that night, but it's based on accounts that he received from other officers. So it's not, he was not at the battle. It's Maxwell reporting to him or other officers reporting to Maxwell what happened in the fight. On the other hand, we have a large number of British and Hessian accounts that tell us what happened. And so it's they who report uh, casualty rates. And probably the most accurate is the, is a British soldier who, or a British officer who was in a group of pioneers. And the pioneers role is specifically to bury bodies on battlefields. Um, he indicates that one of their roles, he indicates that they buried 24 American soldiers on the field. Others will say that there were 40 to 50 American casualties uh, that were killed, but we don't know that for sure. And that could be an account, an attempt to inflate numbers to make the battle look more impressive than it was. By the same token, we don't know exactly how many British and Hessian casualties there were, but they vary um, to you know a extreme, extremely small number, which is why I think there's underreporting occurring there. Um, the British, so with that, we know that there are casualties on the field. We know that the British are responsible for burying the, the bodies. We have no, to date, 240 plus years later, we don't know where those bodies are. And so somewhere on that battlefield, somewhere between say Glasgow, Sunset Lake and Cooch's Bridge, there are uh, American uh, casualties, um, war dead in this space. Uh, so there have been attempts uh, fairly recently to try to do some archaeological investigations to identify where these are. To date, nobody has been able to identify sets of human remains, but it should be, it's important for people to know they're out here someplace on this battlefield. And sort of as, as you see this section of Newcastle County go through subdivision change and developments and things, uh, due diligence would be that you better be looking to make sure that these are out here. This is a, by any definition, that makes this space hallowed ground. Um, Americans have long recognized that places where soldiers lose their lives in defense of their nation, that's hallowed ground. That's pretty much the, the definition. If there were remains to be found, what would be done with those? I think it would depend on what you find and where you find it. Um, it would be... Uh, they should be treated with dignity and respect, I would think, uh, in most cases. Perhaps they should be disinterred and reinterred, but it all would depend on where they're located and, you know, what the circumstances surrounding that the, the discovery of those human remains would be. Um, British forces occupied the house for a five-day, occupied the battlefield, the house at Peaches Bridge, all the way down to the village of Glasgow for five days. So from the 3rd of September to the 8th of September, the entire British army, probably 15,000 plus soldiers, animals, wagons, everything, livestock, you know, horses, the whole bit, were sitting basically from Iron Hill down to the village of Glasgow. And that, uh, uh, Charles Cornwallis, the gen, uh, one of the British generals, occupies the Cooch House um, and uses the house as his headquarters. One of the houses down in the village of Glasgow is used by the, the uh, other major division commander, uh, a German officer of uh, Lieutenant General Knipphausen, uses a house in the village in Glasgow. Uh, and the army 
sits on this space for that period of time. At the same time, the American army is occupying a defensive line along the Red Clay Creek near Newport, Delaware. And so pretty much then you think that any of that land in between, say where the village of Glasgow is, where the village of Christiana is, um, though that is basically no man's land between two armies. And for that five day period, there are scouting parties and patrols from both armies that are going out and investigating that space. Um, one of the Hessian officers occupies a house that currently sits today in um, the, the subdivision of Silverbrook uh, along the Christina River, right off of Chestnut Hill. That is where one of the Hessian Field Jaeger Corps officers house is. There's the possibility uh, Washington says, I don't know, there's a letter exchange between he and Maxwell where he says, I don't know exactly what house you're talking about, but if you think it's worth the raid to try to go capture this officer, by all means, go do it. That never occurs. Uh, that that raid doesn't happen, but it but it tells you that this space is kind of that no man's land in between space. That um, it's it's being vacated by its population when you've got two armies of large size sitting kind of opposite each other within about five or six seven miles of each other. Most of the population, most of the civilians want to get out of the way. And, and so that is occurring. Um, uh, Nathaniel Green, who is one of the American officers, comments on the fact that uh, the roads in the area, he writes this on the 10th of September, the roads in the area are choked with refugees. People are trying to get away. They're trying to get out of the way. Uh, they're driving their livestock into the forest so that the British can't take them. They're, they're trying to take their own goods and stuff with them, their household goods on carts and wagons. He says it's a pretty deplorable situation. So how did that ultimate battle contribute to the course of the war and the ultimate victory? Um, Kucha's Bridge battle is a minor engagement, if you want to look at it, in the overall history of the war. Uh, in Delaware, it's the principal land engagement that occurs. So it, it, it's a, it, I don't mean to detract from it as far as its, its, its significance to Delaware history. It is, it's been recognized as a significant space in Delaware for, for generations. Uh, the monument that is at the bridge was put up in 1901. Uh, it, it and since that time, that commemorative action has been held on a relatively regular basis to recognize the significance of the battle. There are other smaller engagements that occurred in the state. There are other skirmishes and things that occurred. There's a major naval engagement that occurred in 1776 out on the river. Um, but as far as a land engagement goes, Cooch's Bridge is, is a large one. And if you think about the number of soldiers engaged, I don't think I mentioned that the Light Infantry Corps, as on paper, that Light Infantry Corps should have been, the American Light Infantry Corps should have been over a thousand men. It probably never reaches that. It's probably more like about 800. Uh, and its size fluctuates throughout that entire month that it exists so that there are, after the battle, there are more soldiers being added to the Light Infantry Corps, some who maybe didn't fight at, at Cooch's Bridge, but were added in the days after Cooch's Bridge. So 800 or so is not a bad number to, to uh, attribute to them. Uh, it also included mounted soldiers or dragoons, uh, as well as infantry. And 
the pension records indicate these. We're, and the more pension records we look at, the more we find out soldiers who said they actually fought at Cooch's Bridge or were there. Um, so Cooch's Bridge in, 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 in overall kind of historical uh, significance is, a, is one of the lower level battles that it's fought. It's not a pitched battle like Brandywine or Monmouth or Yorktown or Saratoga. But as an important battle in the Philadelphia campaign, it's, it's very significant. It's the opening engagement of the Philadelphia campaign. It shows that Washington and his army are not going to just get out of the way of an invading force that's working its way up the Delmarva Peninsula into Chester County, uh, through Newcastle County into Chester County, and to go seize Philadelphia. It sets the tone of how the American forces are going to respond to this invading force. It was never intended to be an American, um, it wasn't gonna be an American victory. There weren't enough soldiers in, engaged. Um, Maxwell's force was not intended to be the primary force that was gonna stop the British army. A British army of 15,000 or more coming up that road isn't gonna be stopped by a American infantry force of less than a thousand men. The, the American army was sitting too far away at Red Clay Creek to adequately support this light infantry corps. So it was always seen as an advanced engagement and one that was gonna be sort of a, a meeting engagement between, between two parties with one dropping away. But that all being said, it established that the American force was going to fight and that every ability to take on the, the crown forces was gonna be done. So Cooch's Bridge precedes the Battle of Brandywine by eight days. After Brandywine, there's another engagement, an, an almost fight that occurs on the 16th of September uh, called the Battle of the Clouds. That battle in Pennsylvania in the Great Valley doesn't happen because a nor'easter storm blows in, which, you know, seriously dampens, literally dampens the entire engagement. Uh, that is then followed by the the uh, fight at Paoli on the night of the 20th and 21st, which is then followed by uh, outmaneuvering of Washington's forces along the Schuylkill and seizure of Philadelphia by the 25th or 26th of September. But just because the British forces seized Philadelphia doesn't end the Philadelphia campaign because the British Navy can't get up the river to resupply the British forces. It can't get up the Delaware River because there are fortifications and obstructions and a Pennsylvania Navy that are gonna stop British from doing this. And so taking Philadelphia in late September still leads to the Battle of Germantown in early October. And it still leads to the Battle of Red Bank or Fort Mercer in late October. And it leads to the siege at Fort Mifflin in November. And it's not until all those things occur that the British forces are able to bust through the river defenses and resupply uh, the Crown forces in Philadelphia. So if you kind of look at it that way, Crown, uh, the Battle of Cooch's Bridge is the beginning of all that. It sets that tone. It shows that the Americans are going to contest that battleground and contest that space and not just roll over and play dead. And it also is the beginning of, you're beginning to see that professionalization of the American force. So as a site of, as you said, a lot of ideological talking about how the American uh, country and as an army, how it's going to operate. How has the Cooch's Bridge area been preserved? Uh, we can thank the Cooch family uh, for that. The Cooch's own, ha have owned and still own 
a lot of the land where the battle was fought. So the at least around the Cooch house and bridge. Um, the eight generations of family that have lived there have been excellent stewards of the property. They it is still sort of an enclave of open land and farmland in a ever increasingly subdivided and, and over overdeveloped um, Newcastle County. That's an opinion, I think. The the house, the Cooch, the house at Cooch's Bridge, which was owned by the Cooch family at that time, and up until the last year or so, was owned by the Cooch family. It's been in their family for at least eight generations. Um, that house served as the headquarters of that light infantry corps. So the the land around it is that the house recently came into acquisition of the Division of Historical and Cultural Affairs. So the house and 10 acres are now owned by the state of Delaware. They also own some other property in the area at the Cooch Diet Mill and some other land. And so the intent eventually will be to develop this into a uh, historic space, a public space where people can come and learn about uh, this battle, but also the, the history of the land and the history of the area. Uh, the, the landscape in this section of Newcastle County is, is losing its open space and distinctiveness. And so any kind of information we can gain about this before that happens, the better off we are. I mean, and this is not unusual across Eastern United States, the, the battlefields like Pooch's Bridge are often not given a lot of press or, or uh, uh, consequence because they were always out in open spaces. They were always in farmland. They weren't threatened by anything. And so when you start to see those landscapes disappear, people begin to focus on these spaces again and think about them. And you, then you run into the, this, this kind of discussion of, well, if it was really important, somebody would have said something about it a long time ago. Well, we, we have said things about it over generations. Uh, it wasn't threatened before with total oblivion and, dis, and destruction because when you, you know, battlefields, and, I'm, and I'll take this on as an archaeologist, battlefields are remarkably resilient places. You think about the number of people involved in an engagement, even one that lasted only a couple hours, like the Battle at Cooch's Bridge. If you put several hundred, several thousand soldiers, a couple thousand soldiers on a battlefield and they exchange fire with each other over several hours, there is a lot of archaeological evidence of that event. That archaeological evidence can be gathered and interpreted, and we can learn more about what happened in this space not just through the history books, which, as I've said, we have very little to go on from the American side. There's very little written about this fight. Uh, the English side, the Hessians, we have more information on what happened there. But that archaeological component has been missing from that. These aren't just isolated relics of the battlefield. These are pieces of information that are really significant to understanding this space. And if we lose those pieces, we lose pages of our history book, literally that are just being obliterated because we lose that space. These are not deeply buried things. These are up in, a, in the soil that are, that are there to be found and there to be learned from. Uh, and also that being said, I would, I would emphasize that the land that is currently owned by the Cooches and the land that is currently owned by the state of Delaware is not open to 
random metal detecting, just so that's clear. If I'm not mistaken, there is a book coming out that you're writing about uh, the battle at Cooch's Bridge to kind of fill in that gap of Delaware and national history. I am writing a book now. I have been writing it for a while, but I am working on getting it completed. Um, the current volume that exists was written by a, a member of the Cooch family, um, Edward W. Cooch, uh, or Edward Cooch Sr., um, and he was Lieutenant Governor of the state of Delaware at the time that he wrote the book uh, in 1940. That's really the last volume that has been written about the battle, and, uh, and uh, at the time in 1940, uh, that volume covered much of the most uh, up-to-date uh, information we had, but there was a lot of material has come to light since that time. A lot of uh, translations of the German documents, which haven't been, uh, many of which had never been used before. Uh, looking into the actual American forces that fought there, which is not something that was uh, really focused on by that first volume. And, and the archaeological data, which is something that hasn't really been looked at before. So yeah, I'm, I'm working to get that volume finished uh, and it will be out as soon as I can possibly have it. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Mr. Katz, for sharing your time and knowledge with us today and to our listeners for the time as well. Be sure to keep an eye out for his upcoming book and for our next episode, which comes out next Friday. See you then.